Well, let's read uh, Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8 together. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8 together, and then we'll, we'll study uh, portions of this psalm uh, this morning as we talk about God's purpose for family worship. So open up your Bibles or grab the few Bible in front of you to Psalm 78. You can keep your Bibles open the whole morning as we will reference this psalm. Psalm 78, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of Yahweh and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might come to know them. The children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, John G. Patton was a missionary to cannibals uh, in the 1800s, and he had sweet memories of his father daily leading family worship. You see, most nights in his home, his father would lead the family in, in a hymn, scripture reading, catechism, and prayers. But as it turned out, Patton's family wasn't the only ones benefiting from Patton's father. See, John Patton writes, I have heard that in long after years, the worst woman in the village, then leading an immoral life, but since changed by the grace of God, was known to declare that the only thing that kept her from despair and from the hell of the suicide was when in the dark winter nights she crept close up underneath my father's window and heard him pleading in family worship that God would convert the sinner from the error of wicked ways and polish him as a jewel for the Redeemer's crown. I felt, said she, that I was a burden on that good man's heart, and I knew that God would not disappoint him. That thought kept me out of hell and at last led me to the only Savior. There's often unintended blessings when we are simply faithful to shepherd the families that the Lord has entrusted to us. I think with our double-paned glass, we probably won't have too many people creeping up under our windows at night listening to us do family worship. But there are often unintended consequences of simply being faithful to do what God calls us to do. See, and God has designed families to thrive with faithful daily reminders of God and his grace. He's designed the home to be perhaps the most consistent location of our worship and discipleship in our lives. And although something is better than nothing outside of reading to children who can't read and bedtime prayers, family worship 
often falls through the cracks of a busy life. This is part three in our series on discipleship, focusing on our discipleship of the most important people in our lives, our families. Now, those without young kids in the home, this isn't an opportunity to tune me out. Family worship can and should be for empty nesters. It can and should be for single people, although may it, it might look a little bit more like personal devotions or getting together with your roommate. And family worship assuredly is good for newlyweds without children and those whom God is blessed with with newborns. Family worship is perhaps the best way that I know of to create a culture in your home. And by that I mean I mean a way of thinking, a way of living, a way that your family operates, a culture of discipleship and devotion to Christ. As I hope you'll see, it isn't all that complicated and can easily become a part of anyone's daily routine. The tools are simple. A Bible, a catechism, and a willing heart. And so as we think of the one, one of the primary way avenues for discipleship in our homes, we're going to look at Psalm 78, and we're going to see four principles to guide your family worship. These are four descriptions of family worship that can help make family worship a bit more intentional and fulfill God's call for us to lead our homes towards Christ. This is especially important for godly men to learn to lead our homes towards regular worship. But, but really, these principles need to be learned by the whole home. Women need to embrace these principles as they shepherd kids and even simply their own souls. Kids should take careful notes as we go through these steps and ask their parents if they can do this together. You have my permission to do that. And so let's consider the uh, first principle this morning. Number one, consistent. First principle is consistent. Now, when I became a first-time homeowner 11 years ago, my old hand-me-down lawnmower promptly died. And I learned a lesson in consistency. You see, we hadn't moved into our home yet, and so while I spent late nights painting, I just let the grass grow unmowed for about a month. Then one afternoon, I came over to do some more painting, and I found a note posted on my front door, and it was a warning from the city of Farmington Hills to rid my yard of, and I quote, noxious vegetation, lest I be fined. As you own a home, especially in wet Michigan, I discovered... Many things have to be consistent, including, and not limited to, mowing your lawn. If you don't, the city says, there will be consequences. As Psalm 78 begins, Asaph, one of the three chief musicians that was appointed by David, and the men who led the dedication of Solomon's temple, Asaph begins Psalm 78, proclaiming God's desire to be consistent, faithfully telling successive generations of God's person and his perfections, who he is and what he's done and his character, his nature, and all about him. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me. Psalm 78. He says, A mascal of Asaph, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, 
things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Now, to, for Asaph to call the stories of the past parables or, or dark sayings, as he says in verse 2, is not to say that these things are unknowable, but rather that they are not just a set of historical facts and events. They are certainly historical facts and events, but they're events designed to teach, like a parable is. They're events that are designed to reveal truth about God. And Asaph wanted everyone to listen carefully to his song because he wants us to learn truth about God. Perhaps we first need to notice the importance of listening to God's word and and where is the most natural place we receive this instruction according to verse 3? It's things that we have heard and known that are what? Our fathers have told us. You see, it was assumed that fathers taught their children these truths. And fathers is not simply a vague reference to ancestors that teach us, but it is an active participation by every single father of every single home in every generation. And so Asaph takes up this active fatherly teaching role. And he says, verse 4, beginning of verse 4, We will not hide them, these statutes and teachings and knowledge about God, from their children, but tell to the coming generation. And so principally, what Asaph does here should be done in every single home. Consistent teaching of God's word. You see, in order for the average Israelite to know God, to understand both how and why God has worked in the past, there must be consistent times of spiritual family worship, consistent times of retelling or reading of God's word. And in this case, Asaph wants everyone to sing his song together. And so consistency is the key for family worship. Strive to make it the norm for the average evening in. It's a typical way when when all is ordinary in your life that we spend time and try to make it the same time each day. I mean, so real practically, right? If you know that you eat dinner together most nights, that was a great time to do it. And some families do that. After dinner, they they bring out the Bibles, and they have a time of family worship. Sometimes families do it early in the morning. Other times it's before bed. Other times it's right right before they go to work or right after they get home from school. Whatever time it is that works for your family to do family worship, set aside a regular time to do that. We're all busy, but we all find time to do the things that we need to do, like eat. So why not find time to intentionally worship God as a family? If it's in the evening, involve guests in that routine. If you have guests over, invite them in. And don't feel like you failed when you have a busy stretch and only can do it a couple times in a week. Strive for consistency, a consistent time of day, and do it every day that you can. So that it becomes the norm, as Asaph assumes, that the fathers have, have taught this to their children. Well, in addition to consistency... Family worship should also be systematic. It should also be systematic. And this goes for your personal devotion time as well. Don't simply jump around from favorite passage to favorite passage and play Bible roulette. 
I think you know what I'm talking about. You get the Bible open, you're like, what am I supposed to read today? And you're like, the appendix. Okay, that didn't work. Um, Luke chapter 14, right? You know, this is Bible roulette. You kind of just see where it opens up and you, you read there as if the Holy Spirit is magically making the Bible flop open. So we don't just choose a random place. We need to systematically, carefully read whole books of the Bible so that you can pick up the ideas from the night before, the day before that you read. Carefully learning about God, systematically learning about God. Notice how Asaph shows us the, the fruit of systematic family worship. It reveals the character of God. And we see this in verse 4 as well. It says, We will not hide the truths about God from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of Yahweh and his might and the wonders that he has done. Notice the deeds of God show his might or show his power. And so when he says that, he's saying his character, God's mighty, powerful nature is on display. And so when you see how God works, you begin to see God's character. And you don't understand the full character of God until you understand the full works of God, until you see how God repeatedly works in different ways, yet revealing the same nature and the same character that he has always and always will have. And so we don't simply read a story and think, well, wasn't that a great story? And close our Bible and think, oh, David's a cool guy. Let's go on. No, we read the Bible and we ask every time we read, every chapter of every paragraph, what does this tell us about God? What does this tell me about how I need to think differently about who God is or reveal to us who God is? And sometimes the passage doesn't reveal much about God, but it reveals another aspect of the gospel. And, and so sometimes a passage simply reveals something about human nature, about the struggles that we all face, about the difficulties that are apparent to every single human who has ever, ever lived. And so we begin to understand ourselves better as we read the Bible and as it reveals truths about human nature. And sometimes passages point us directly to Jesus or to the great opportunity that we have to have redemption or, or the forgiveness of sins through Christ alone. And sometimes the passage simply reveals what our response to God should be of repentance and faith, of turning away from living for ourselves and trusting in Christ for all that we are and all that we need. And so when you read the Bible, you need to ask yourself, how does that chapter, how did that paragraph connect to the gospel? How does this help me understand who God is, who we are, who uh, Jesus is, or, or what our response should be to these truths? So whatever you do, we want the full picture of who God is and how God works and how we should live to come out of our family worship. And using a catechism is particularly helpful to systematically touch on all the major doctrines and all the major points of, of Christian truth. To better grasp the glorious character of the one true God and, and to carefully work through the gospel. So family worship should be first, consistent. Second, should be systematic. And third, it should be transformative. Family worship should be transformative. 
Now, the goal of family worship isn't simply to know more things. It's to learn to live like you actually believe the stuff that you say you believe. If Jesus is Lord of your life, shouldn't that affect everything? He's not some occasional interest that you come to know, you know, by osmosis, by living around Christians. Glorifying God should be our consuming passion if we're a Christian. So turning from sin is not some rare feat, but a daily fight. And if you truly believe Jesus is worthy of devotion daily, then the goal of family worship is to live a transformed life. So let's see how Asaph gets to this point in verse 5. Look at verse 5 with me. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. You see, God spoke and gave us his word and his law. And very early on, the expectation was clear. Knowing God's word should be a family affair, not simply a matter of private devotion. So he says, which he commanded our fathers at the end of verse 5 to teach to their children that the next generation, verse 6 says, might know these same commandments, that the children yet unborn and the generation after them and the generation after them would arise and tell them to their children. You see this repetition and this growth from generation to generation. It isn't sufficient for children to be passive recipients of a nightly sermon from dad. It isn't sufficient for them to endure long, boring readings with quiet attention while their minds simply wander. No, children are so to be involved in this process, so to embrace the worship of the one true God that in the not-too-distant future, they will grow up and then be able to, just as passionately as you, teach their kids or, or the children yet unborn, as it says, the same truths. Why? Because the object of their hope has been radically transformed, has been radically changed. Look at verse 7 so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Now, hope is a very powerful thing. Uh, but in, in Hebrew, it doesn't just mean hoping for something that might come true. Hope here is a word that speaks to what we trust in when we realize that we can't do it on our own. In fact, that Hebrew word for hope also is the same Hebrew word that sometimes is used for weakness. And so it implies that you understand your weakness, and so you place your trust or your confidence or your hope in something else besides you because you realize you're weak. And so we are to confidently trust, and that, that type of hope should be placed in God alone. That type of confident trust in God then should change lives. Because look at the end of verse 7, right? So that we should not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. The type of confident trust in God is transformative. At this point, I want uh, college students to look up. I want, I want teens to look up and, and almost teens to look up at me. I have something very important here. Forgetting God's word 
and pretending like God isn't the most important part of all of life is perhaps the most dangerous direction that you can walk. God is certainly just as powerful and certainly fully God while you're at school or when you're with your unbelieving friends. And yet, how many of your friends, how many of the people who interact with you daily actually know that you are a Christian? Actually know that you love Jesus? Know that your hope is in Jesus? And not video games, not money, not success. You can always tell where your confidence, confidence lies by what you talk about. So is Jesus ever part of your conversations? It's good for adults to learn too, isn't it? Because God should be a part of our conversations because we should want to follow him if we actually believe this stuff. If we forget God, if we neglect to walk in his ways, then we must be warned. And that's actually our fourth principle of family worship. Warning. Warning. Now, this doesn't mean that there's no joy in family worship. It doesn't mean that there, these times are 100% serious all the time or that fathers and husbands must rule with some heavy hand as they teach their children. But in so much as God himself warns his people of the consequences of walking along the broad road that leads to destruction, so too must we have an element of warning. Warning of what might come if we live like God is not king. Asaph, again, not only highlights that family worship should be transformative, but at times there must be warnings. Look at the end of verse 7 again. It says, children should not forget the works of God but keep his commandments, verse 8, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And with that warning to not be like their forefathers, Asaph then jumps into the main body of this psalm, a recounting of Israel's history during the Exodus, an extended warning of what happens when you forget that God is God, or at least don't act like God is God every day, when you neglect to walk in his ways, when you let your stubborn and rebellious heart rule your desires. And sometimes we need to be warned. And if we read the Bible in family worship, we will be warned plenty. So don't shy away from these warnings. Apply these warnings to your life. Apply these warnings to your family's life. Avoid the typical, wow, those Israelites were really dumb. I'm glad I'm not as bad as they were. Humbly, find your own propensity to sin. Ask your wife and your children to probe a little into your life and teach your children how to ask the hard questions of themselves. So with those principles lined out to help guide our family worship, some still wonder how to do family worship. You maybe have never done it. Maybe it's not something you've started. Maybe your kids are grown and you're like, do I even still need to do this? Well, the answer is yes. More than once I've been asked, so, so what does this actually look like? And I wish all of you could be in my home and see the typical pattern and even the challenges that we have in our home to have our kids stay focused, the, the cries for water that come out in the middle of Bible reading, oh, I'm so parched right now. And the simple joys 
of good questions asked and answered by eight-year-olds. But since that's quite difficult and my children would rebel if I brought them up here, I figured it would be helpful to give you a liturgy. Okay? This is a liturgy for family worship. Now, at this point, you might think, I thought liturgies are what my, I saw my grandma's Lutheran church or in my father's Roman Catholic church. What's all this about some liturgy? I thought this was a Baptist church or a Bible church, and you are right. But liturgy isn't some nasty, bad word. It isn't code for imposing the traditions of men on the church. Liturgy is simply a typical way that one organizes worship we very much have a typical liturgy in our service. Just open up your bulletin and see the left side, and we have a liturgy in our church. It's basically the same every single week. So all I'm doing is simply giving you an idea of what your order of service should look like for family worship. It's really simple and can be adjusted for different situations different ages and different attention spans of children or sometimes different attention spans of adults, the whole time that we spend in family worship generally should no la uh, last no longer than maybe 20, 30 minutes at the most. Start with 10, start with five. Well, a good place to start in your liturgy is with singing. Sing, this is the first component of liturgy. Now, some of you hear that, and you see that, and you say, what? I am not a singer, nor the son of a singer. How in the world am I supposed to lead singing in my home? And that's fine. You don't need to be an amazing singer to enjoy a worship song together. In fact, we have the current song list, about 25 songs that we'll be singing over the next couple of months on Spotify and YouTube, and that was sent out last night to our church. It was also now posted on our website. You can look at that, pick a song, maybe pick a song for a week until your family knows it and learns it, pull up the lyrics on your phone, and sing along. Maybe just pull up a, a, a verse or two of a hymn and choose that and, and sing it together. Or turn the volume up on your phone if you don't think you sound very good, and and make that voice be the loudest voice in the room. Now, if there's one element of family worship that we cut because of time, admittedly, this is our first go-to. Others may choose another route, but, but singing can be simple and a great way to transition from whatever you're doing into family worship, to start thinking about the Lord together. And as soon as you're done singing, next, number two, pray for illumination. Pray for illumination. Now, this is the type of prayer that I pray every time I preach right at the end of my prayer petition. It goes something like this. Lord, I ask that you would please help us to understand your word, that you would show us who you are. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would illumine our minds and reveal truth to our hearts. So this prayer is really an expression of our dependence on God, the Holy Spirit, for illumination. Illumination is simply brightness or, or making it light for him to open our eyes and help us understand God, to help us see our sin, help us to see our need for growth, even to help us pay attention as we read the Bible. I mean, how many of you are reading the scriptures or maybe you're listening to this sermon right now and then all of a sudden you wonder, why in the world am I thinking of this high school friend that I haven't talked to in the last 25 years, right? I mean, how many of you have done that, right? Maybe you're not 25 removed, years removed from high school, but you understand that principle, right? You, you all of a sudden like, how did this happen? Why not ask God, the Holy Spirit, to help you focus? 
And it's funny how our minds work, but if you belong to Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, and thus he is powerful in us to help you grow and to help you even focus, to help you understand his word. So we express our dependence on God, the Holy Spirit, in prayer. So we sing, we pray for illumination, and third, you read the Bible. And we're talking about the actual Bible, not just a devotion. Are devotionals any good? Well, absolutely. Are they helpful supplements and helpful guides? Yes and yes. But please make a habit in family worship and in your personal devotion time to open up the Bible itself and read. Some practical notes here. We started reading the actual Bible uh, with our, when our oldest was six years old. So we had a six, a four, and a two-year-old. And that's when we started reading the actual Bible. It is entirely possible, even with very squirrely and challenging children, to spend a little bit of time reading God's Word together. Maybe it's half a chapter. Maybe it's a few verses. Maybe it's a whole chapter. For some, it's two minutes, and for others, it's 20 minutes. Just spend time in God's Word as a family. If you don't have kids in the home, great. Do it with your spouse. Do it with your roommates. And as a note, we would often read children's Bibles for the littles and sit the youngest one square in our lap and then let them quietly play while we read the Bible uh, for the slightly older children. Listen, kids will grow and change, and your Bible times should grow and change. Just make the one constant thing is that you open up the Bible. And please don't feel like you need to do a lot of prep work for this. I mean, that's one of those things that... that kind of gets people away from doing this. They think, man, if I'm supposed to lead my family and family worship, then I need to spend 20, 30 minutes studying the passage ahead of time and preparing something to give a little sermon. That's not what you need to do. Just open your Bibles and read systematically through whole books of the Bible together. Ask questions of the text together. Have a study Bible if you want handy. So if you need a quick answer, answer it. But don't get bogged down. And after you're done reading God's word, the next element, read or review a catechism. Review your catechism. Every Christian is to know and understand sound or healthy doctrine. 1 Timothy 4.11 and Titus 2.1, Paul actually commands these young pastors to teach and train the whole church to know and to be able to defend sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is simply clear, relevant truths about God that are good or healthy for our souls, that transform our life. Sound doctrine then is for every single Christian because every Christian must grow in discernment. Every single Christian must recognize truth from error. Every single Christian must be able to defend the faith. To know the scriptures and what they teach us about God is central to this calling. And so it's no surprise that as the church sought to make disciples, teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded, the vehicle for this discipleship throughout most of Protestant history is very simply a catechism. Uh, a set of questions and answers that you would review and understand and, and think about together. And it's really only been in the last about 100 years, 120 years, that the Baptists and other Bible churches began to slowly shift away from catechism use. Thankfully, as more and more Christians are aware of the blessings and benefits of the timeless practice of catechism use, this practice is growing in interest. 
And so we have our catechism that we use and we say in our church. It was developed with the best historical catechisms as kind of a backbone, and it was set up to touch on every aspect of biblical doctrine. And just to be clear, a catechism isn't just for kids. It doesn't have an expiration date at 10 years of age. It's perhaps most useful for young adults to begin to study and to learn why it is we believe and what we believe. And so my prayer is that when you guys leave here today and you get a copy of a Catechism for Christian Growth, that you'll use it in your times of family worship. That it'll be a tool that you can use for your own private devotional time. That it can be something you work through with, with a new Christian in your workplace. And as much as I developed the Catechism for Christian Growth, it is as much First Baptist's Catechism as it is mine. For, for you have helped me greatly in this process, and I thank you very much. So review a catechism. Well, last element of family worship, pray all four types of prayer. Pray all four types of prayer. What do I mean by all four types of prayer? These are the four types of prayer that we pray in every single service. Praise, confession, petition, thanksgiving. Sometimes it's uh, summarized with acts. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Supplication is another word for petition. We do this. Our first prayer in our service is always a prayer of praise. Our second prayer is always a prayer of confession. Our third prayer is always a prayer of petition. Our last prayer is always a prayer of thanksgiving. And so we want to help children. We want to help ourselves and, and those in our, our family and those in our homes to pray these prayers. And one simple way to do that, you can give yourself and give your children some some prompts so when we had little ones two three years old we would just say okay dear lord i praise you for and they say i praise you for and then they'd repeat the prompt right they'd, they'd say something they wanted to praise god for then they'd say and then we'd say i'm sorry for i'm sorry for what something specifically please help and then they would pray something specifically and then they'd say i thank you for and then something specifically they would thank you for this is great for three-year-olds. Three-year-olds can start praying in this way. So have the whole family pray and encourage everyone to pour out their hearts to God. And even if you're just new to understanding, these prompts aren't childish. These prompts are simply a way to help you understand the four main types of prayer that we find in scriptures and that we should learn to have in our prayers too. And as family worship takes root, you can expand and start encouraging everyone to pray for maybe a church member. You can thank God for something you learned in your scripture reading. You can pray through a passage of scriptures as a family. Listen, the possibilities are endless to grow. But this is a good and simple liturgy for your family worship. Sing, pray for illumination, read the Bible, reveal catechism, and pray all four types of prayer. Occasionally, though, things will go wrong. You'll feel like it isn't worth doing again after some disaster of family worship. You'll feel tired and grumpy and not want to do family worship. You maybe have gotten into a huge fight with your loved one or a child, and everything seems a bit too icy to do family worship. But let me encourage you, be consistent and learn from what goes wrong. Learn from what goes wrong. In fact, that's exactly what Asaph wants us to do. He wants us to sing his song so we can learn from what goes wrong. 
We can, sing, we can see the disaster that comes with forgetting God, with neglecting to worship together as a family. And the first lesson, as we learn from what goes wrong, is how easy it is to forget. How easy it is to forget. Life gets busy. In this case, life gets busy and you know, you go to war. You struggle to find water, you struggle to find food, and pretty soon you forget about family worship. Wait, you guys had to war and struggling to find water and food? I don't think so. And, and maybe, maybe we would excuse the Israelites for neglecting to teach the children the truths of God. But Asaph sure doesn't. Look at verse 9. He says, The Ephraimites are armed with a bow and they turned back on the day of battle. Ephraimites were the half-tribe of Joseph. They were the most powerful tribe during the time of the judges. They were the tribe that was poised to be the leader in Israel. But the root of idolatry came out of Ephraim again and again, and rebellion worked its way into Ephraim, this tribe that would eventually become the epicenter of northern Israel and pagan worship. And so he says, Ephraimites were armed with a bow. They had everything they needed, but they turned back on the day of battle. You can refer to actual battle and spiritual battle. They did not keep God's word, verse uh, 10. They did not keep God's covenant, but they refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. Oh, how easy it is to forget that we've been given everything we need to walk closely with God, to engage in family worship. Instead, we slowly let the cares of the world begin to dominate our thinking and our priorities. And the thinking of the world begins to crowd out Christ's commands and become more and more important. Well, there's a second lesson to learn from what goes wrong, how faithfully God still works. We learn how easy it is to forget and how faithfully God still works. In spite of Israel's repeated rebellion, in spite of wanting to stone Moses and Aaron and turn back to Egypt in the wilderness, God continued to provide for Israel. He continued to work in their life. Look at verse 12. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders. In the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan, he divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with the cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split the rocks in the wilderness and he gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. And that is so often how God works. Faithfully providing, even miraculously providing for a rebellious people. Oh, beloved, a, a motivation for regular family worship is in the ways that God still works in our lives, even when we're drifting from him. We can see God giving us what we need if only we take time to consider God's work. That's what family worship helps us do, to remember how faithfully God still works. Well, there's a third lesson. How quickly desires turn to demands. Third lesson, how quickly desires turn to demands. There are a lot of desires that aren't inherently evil, like the desire for tacos. I mean, who doesn't love a good taco, right? Everyone loves tacos. I haven't met someone who doesn't really like tacos. You might not like the cilantro, but you don't dislike a good taco. 
Some of you desire a spouse when you're single, and is that a wrong thing? I mean, no, of course that's not a wrong thing. It's a good thing to desire a spouse if you're single. Some of you desire peace and quiet because your life is hectic and busy and crazy. Is that a terrible thing? Absolutely not. But occasionally, those desires become ruling desires in your heart. They begin to so dominate your thinking that they become demands. And so it is with Israel. Look at verse 17. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food that they craved. Tacos, as it were, right? They wanted meat. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water could gush out. He did this miracle, and streams overflowed uh, amazingly. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? They had seen God repeatedly provide miraculously, and yet they grew tired of water and manna, and they wanted meat. Not a bad desire, but it began to be a demanding desire of their heart. Occasionally, we too demand what we crave. As we apply these things to family worship, so many desires seem to crowd out the desire to sing, read, study, and pray as a family. Often good things, good desires, crowd out the better. And the less frequently we worship God as a family, the quicker our desires turn to demands. And so consider the struggles that you find in your home or in your heart. The frequent demands and anger that follows your unmet demands. And consider the struggles, and I want you to, uh, and I want to assert, those struggles are like symptoms, among many different symptoms, that happens when we don't pursue things like family worship. And family worship doesn't make sin go away, but it certainly keeps us more faithful to stay in the fight and not give in to every single demand that comes our way. Well, there's a fourth lesson. How serious is God's just wrath? In the next verses, Asaph recalls how God gave Israel meat. He gave them, verse 27 says very clearly, winged birds like the sand of the sea. But God's wrath was hot on the malcontent people. And we see this in verse 30. But before they had satisfied their craving while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them. And he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. Verse 32. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. Oh, beloved, does your heart break for those who are vanishing in a breath? For the unbeliever who does not know Christ as their Lord and Savior? Do you mourn for the family members who walk against God? Does your family know the righteous terror of God's just wrath? Do you even feel that in your own heart? As you read God's word, you can't help but come across God's wrath again and again and again. And as Hebrews 10.31 says, For it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the 
living God. It is instructive to our souls to read God's word and see that God is both perfectly loving and perfectly wrathful. And that despite all of us deserving wrath, God's mercy still abounds. So our fifth lesson, how amazing is God's mercy? You ever feel like someone's tears and their sorries are just a show, like like they are sad they got caught and are willing to do anything or say anything just to get out of it? Well, that's Israel right here. Many of them die with the meat of these quails in their mouths. They turn momentarily back to God, but it was a lie. Look at verse 36. They flattered him with their mouths, and they lied to him with their tongues. Verse 37, they were not faithful to his covenant. Yet God, verse 38, yet God, being compassionate, atoned or covered for their iniquity, and he did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. God continued to work with his people in spite of their sin. He is faithful when they are faithless. Shouldn't that motivate us to regular family worship? To be moved by God's compassion on us when we're weak, us when we fail. Truths like this doesn't make us say, oh, well, let me sin all the more. When you understand God's character, that moves us to worship. So, therefore, we should long to worship God daily in our homes. Well, in verses 40 through 70, Asaph takes us through the same cycle of forgetting, disobedience, demands, and God's wrath. But he concludes remembering another detail of God's mercy, How perfect is God's shepherd, verse 70 through 72. Asaph is looking at King David, but we know there's a greater David yet to come, King Jesus. Listen to Asaph's conclusion of God's mercy on his people, verse 70. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skilled hand. Good shepherds of our souls is what Peter calls Jesus. We were wandering from the fold as wicked and stubborn as Israel, and yet Jesus took on flesh, suffered God's wrath for our sins as a perfect substitute. He bore the shame reserved for me, so all we know is grace. You see, it's in our weakness that we realize how much we need Christ. And it's when we're confronted with our weakness that we come to truly enjoy things like family worship. Family worship isn't a toilsome task to perform. It should flow out of our love for Christ and understanding that when things go wrong, and they will, God calls us back to bring the broken home. Our responsibility then is to turn our homes into venues for discipleship, to embrace God's call, to help those closest to us to worship him well, to remember Christ, the good shepherd of our souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time that we've got to study your word, to see how Asaph reminded and called the people of Israel to make sure that they were faithful, to love their families well, 
to lead their families to know Christ and uh, the need for a Messiah and to point them towards your forgiveness and your mercies in spite of our sin. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful as well to guide and direct our families in daily and uh, regular, consistent family worship for your glory and for our good. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.